Welcome to the EMS Educator Podcast, powered by Prodigy EMS. Join us for relevant, high-quality discussions around the best practices in EMS education. You'll find interviews with experts in EMS, education, simulation, medical direction, leadership, and more. Hello, and welcome to another edition of the EMS Educator Podcast. I'm Rob Lawrence. This episode is hot on the heels of NAMSP 2022 in San Diego, and you can still pick up all of the top tips on Twitter by following hashtag NAMSP 2022. But we are here this week to announce the fact that we have a new medical director at Prodigy EMS, and to do the grand reveal is my amazing co-host, Hilary Gates. H. Thanks, Rob. I am so thrilled today to be able to welcome to Prodigy EMS, as well as to the EMS Educator Podcast, Dr. Maya Dorsett, who is an incredible physician educator and champion of EMS providers everywhere. Welcome, Maya, to Prodigy EMS and to the podcast. So excited to be here. So Maya and Rob had some fun last week on the escalator with some socks and in San Diego in general. And I want Maya to tell us her background a little bit. But first, I have to talk about our origin story because I can't believe it's 2022 and Maya and Hillary are back together again because we met at a random conference in Washington, D.C. in 2018. It was the LOWN conference, L-O-W-N, which is a conference around social determinants of health and healthcare equity that I attended as a burgeoning MIHCP nerd. And I was directed to go sit with Maya at lunch by the woman who was running the conference. And she said, you'll love her. And turns out she was right. So it's so cool that our paths have crossed again. Of course, they crossed quite a bit when I was running the conference at EMS World, but it is now my distinct pleasure to have you guys be introduced to Maya Dorset. So Maya, take it away. Tell us about yourself. Just to back up too, is I remember uh, that conference and that was a conference that was focused on how do we make it so that the resources we have in healthcare are directed in a way that best meets the needs of our patients and our communities. There were not a lot of EMS people in that conference. Actually, I thought I was an N of one until you arrived, and I felt that I met somebody who shared those dreams, and it was really, really exciting. And that sort of also relates to why I ended up in EMS in the first place. So I did not train in EMS. I was never an EMT or a paramedic, which is a little bit of a a sore spot for me, but at the same time, I think it meant that I could also come from sort of an outsider's perspective. I got interested in EMS when I was a resident in emergency medicine, and I felt, you know, receiving patients in the emergency department is that we were often doing the same thing over and over again in a way that didn't actually change patients' outcomes and really develop this love of systems thinking and thinking about how do we go upstream and meet the needs of patients And I think EMS was just this like bright spot as I did an EMS rotation and I was in people's homes and saw where they came from and connected with them on a community level. And that was like a light bulb uh, went off. It was actually sort of a bit of a crisis because I had a background in basic science research and had planned my life accordingly. But I made that turn and I don't think I've ever looked back. Outstanding. And Maya, you're now the 
medical director at Monroe Community College up in Rochester, in addition to being an EM and EMS physician at Rochester Medical Center. And I know you also have a PhD, uh, which is not common, but what's your PhD in and why? So my PhD is actually in molecular genetics, and I did it as part of my combined training. I did training through the MSTP program. I sometimes say that I don't really use it, except that I sort of really do. So I think sometimes people look back and said, oh, you did this PhD in basic science. Do you have like a regret about taking the time in your life to do that? The reality is that I don't because I think my PhD taught me how to think and how to ask questions and how to say, does the data or the results I have actually answer the question that I'm trying to answer? And what is the caveat to that? And also genetics is the science really of basic principles. Things have gotten a lot more complex as technologies have gotten more complex, but really it all comes down to basic principles that you apply to answer questions and understand how systems work. And so I think that that thinking, being able to say sort of what is the system, right? The genetics, the epigenetics that leads to a particular outcome is actually the same sort of thinking that I apply to the problems I encounter now in EMS and gave me sort of the background to approach problems in that way. And we'll definitely be talking about that principle and this the systems theory that you keep referring to. The thing I have noticed about you from the get-go is the questions and the thinking that you do, not just with a new friend at lunch at a conference, but also with your learners and when you've taught, uh, when I've watched you teach workshops and uh, various other things. So I'm going to definitely come back to that when we talk about your role as the medical director for a paramedic program as well. Go ahead, Rob. So yeah, let, let me jump in. So, uh, you know, one of the things we're going to talk about eventually is FOMED. But uh, right now, we're going to talk about FOMO, Hillary, because yeah, you didn't join us in San Diego last week. So Hillary, Hillary's got severe FOMO, fear of missing out uh, in this case. So we had an amazing time, actually. And when this podcast comes out, it will also be time with a press release that we're doing. Also, the amazing cinematography team that we have at Prodigy uh, did an interview. Uh, I was uh, delighted to uh, interview Maya uh, on the roof of the hotel, which was very, very pleasant, Hillary. It was very sunny. None of that snow stuff that you have over there. On yeah, the, but uh, you had a tsunami. Don't forget about the tsunami. We did. We did. And uh, in San Diego Harbor, it rose 19 centimeters. Uh, Whew, but crazy. of course, let's not play that down. It could have been a lot worse, first of all. The key question I asked you, Maya, though, is why Prodigy? I think one of the roles that we have as an educator, just like anybody part of any system, is to find ways to continue to learn and to better ourselves. And one of the strategies I've learned to do that is to associate myself with people who are trying to do that and push the envelope on things that I don't know. I was very honored to be asked to be the medical director of Prodigy, but I think there's a lot that I stand to gain from a perspective of associating with experts in doing asynchronous and online education. In every interaction I've had with Prodigy, I've really been impressed by the thought process and the overall goal. When I think about projects that I want to spend my time on, I think about people who sort of share the same dreams as I do, which is changing how do we educate in a way that prepares people to take better care of our patients and our communities. That's the cause that I always bring myself back to, whether or not it's designing an individual lesson plan or deciding sort of what national projects I'm going to spend my time on. 
And I felt that every time I interact with people from Prodigy, like you or Hillary or James, that that is a core part of what drives them. And that makes it really attractive for me to be a part of that. Well said. I, I think it's fair to say we all live our lives here at Prodigy just trying to actually improve EMS to take us all to the next level. And that's certainly something we believe in. And that's something we see in you. And if this was a video version, we're all grinning like fools here because we're so pleased to have you on board. Before we go any further, though, please take a second if, to follow us on Apple Podcasts, on SoundCloud, on Amazon Music, on Stitcher, on Spotify. And please, please, please give the show a five-star rating so we move up the charts and uh, other people can find us and listen to this amazing content. Hillary. So Maya, you're talking about lifelong learning. And when we sign up to be EMS providers, we certainly sign up for a two-year research cycle and some dabbling in EMS education here and there as we are doing our con ed. But you're talking about lifelong learning in the sense that every day, every shift, every hour, every encounter is an opportunity to learn something new. And let's not lie, there's some burnout in our industry. There are some folks who are feeling like they don't want to put in any more effort or they're too tired or they already know what they need to know and let's just pass the test or master the skill. You have done some incredible work around this issue, including being the co-author of a position paper that the pre-hospital emergency care and AMSP's publication put out around going beyond skills in EMS education and creating lifelong learners. And then FOMO, again, I missed your lifelong learning pre-conference session at NAMSP last week, but I want to hear more about how you do that. And just sort of the big question of as a medical director, as a chief, as a leader in an industry or an agency, rather, how do you create opportunities for lifelong learning and stimulate and uh, support the minds of your learners so that they continue to be eager to learn? I think it's not something that you do overnight. I think fundamentally, it takes a shift in culture. I think these two things, right, are completely interdependent, is that from a leadership perspective, from an organizational perspective, we want to be the leaders of learning organizations, right? Organizations that are constantly adapting to changes in evidence, or even the changes in the needs of our community, as we all know, you know, what's happened over the last two years, we have to be able to pivot that sometimes it's the evidence that changes and sometimes the need changes or the resources. As leaders of those organizations, you want to make those kinds of pivots. And then at the same time, you can't have learning organizations without learning people. And fundamentally, that needs to be a core part, the, the desire to achieve in personal mastery or grow as a learner is something that needs to be a core part of the individuals within that organization because fundamentally, right, they are the substance by which our organization learns. It wouldn't be me if I didn't plug a book, but I think that the place where I really learned about this was a book called The Fifth Discipline by Peter Senge, which I read after teaching a quality improvement workshop with Mike Tegman, where he talked about this book. And then I said, oh, I should go read that. But he, Peter Senge talks specifically about like the role of personal mastery in causing sort of a, you know, a continual drive to, to get better. And so I think the real question here is as a leader, how do you encourage personal mastery in the people who are part of the organization? And um, how do you create that as a value of the organization? And I think that there's lots of ways that you do it. The first is that 
leaders need to demonstrate their own vulnerability and to show themselves of lifelong learners. I think lots of times leaders feel this need to know all the answers, to be able to say black and white, this is what happens, or I'm always right, and feel that confidence, right, is more important than vulnerability and as a leader. And I think it's actually the opposite. I think vulnerability is more important than confidence to instill the value that we don't always know and leaders make mistakes, but the value that we most espouse is the ability to actually learn from those mistakes because that sets what is the expectation and what is valued as part of this organization. And then I think that the key there is you have to create an environment where there's psychological safety, where people are able to share openly what is it that they don't know or what mistakes have they made so that they have the opportunity to learn from those mistakes, which others in the organization usually need to learn from as well. So I think one of the things I learned is that this is, this is a cultural shift that we need to make. And there isn't one thing, right? Like there's not one learning objective and one session I can do to change this. It's a continual process and like living those particular values within the organization. I have to say, this is why I became involved in initial paramedic education, other than I just love the learners. (laughs) But when I think about how do you make culture, I can focus on areas of undoing a culture that already exists, which is part of what we do, right, with people who are established part of the system. But sometimes you can actually have a lot of bang for your buck, give or take, because of what our turnover is in our system, which I hope to change over time by getting in with those initial learners who are getting into the industry and establishing that culture there and then setting them up to take this perspective that I'm never going to know all the answers because the answers are going to change and have them shift their culture as they become the workforce. You actually touched on some of Lawrence's six principles of leadership, uh, which are pride, integrity, learning, humor, service, courage, and tactics or are no longer, you know, the opinion of the senior person present. In other words, if someone has a good idea, let us know. But what I really honed in on there was your description of what I think of as emotional intelligence, the ability to actually listen. Because if you're doing all the talking, as you said, then you're not doing any of the listening. And so as a leader, we need to be able to understand that in order to test, adjust our culture in order to encourage people to thrive, in order to encourage people to learn. And so that, you know, it hit a chord with me there, Maya. And uh, I, I think that, uh, you know, absolutely you're onto something there. One of the things that is so important in our industry is this psychology of safety that you mentioned, Maya. And I love that you recognize the importance of getting in on the ground floor of the learning experience rather than trying to undo a culture. The undoing of the culture is what is possibly holding us back in EMS from from accomplishing a lot more than we've traditionally kind of gone for. And this idea that you're making learning safe and sexy and fun and showing as a leader or as an educator your vulnerability and your your past mistakes and how you've learned from them is a way to make those learners feel like they can make an error, like they can ask questions and not feel like they're asking a stupid question. Part of our 
potential problem in EMS education might have to do with the militarization of the education and making it more like a boot camp rather than an educational environment. And there are community colleges like yours and other educational settings that are much less that way. And then on the other end of the spectrum, a a lot more kind of rank and file push-ups when you make a mistake, that kind of thing, organization. So I think if, if I can say to educators out there, one of my most powerful examples of vulnerability that ever happened to me, and, and if you know me, you know that I wear my heart on my sleeve and I have a very hard time not telling uh, the truth and how I feel about things. And I often use stories of patient care and experiences I had as paramedic where I made a mistake. And I would tell those stories to my students. And a few of them, the first time I, I taught in the EMT class, a few of them came to me after and said, Hillary, we really appreciated that you admitted that you made mistakes and learned from them. And I said, well, of course, I'm human. And they said, yeah, but other instructors don't always do that. So I don't think it should be the um, you know majority of your content, but it certainly humanizes the industry a little bit more and allows for people to understand that we're in a business where life is at stake. It's a little bit different than a lot of other industries, but we have to recognize that if we can't make people feel comfortable making a mistake or going through a learning process, then we're probably going to make them be afraid to ever ask for help. And I'll just chip in there. I, I spent the first my first 10 American years working under the great Joe Onato, and uh, that was an absolute you know, fantastic experience. Uh, his go-to guide was to err uh, as human, and actually the creation of the culture of safety, just culture, and the fact that we do make mistakes, and if we don't discuss them, then we won't learn from them. And so therefore, the self-reporting of uh, of issues was absolutely important and was absolutely encouraged. But that starts from the top. That starts from the medical director. It starts from the chief executive. But actually, that's somewhere that we have to go in order to encourage the learning process. Because yes, as Dr. Renato said, to err is human, but we must make sure that we're ready to recover from that, learn and improve. Are you sure he didn't say err? Because you're saying err, and is that the British way that you say E-R-R? Maya, we have a regular discussion about tomatoes and tomatoes. We have a regular discussion about aluminum and aluminium. So feel free to jump in. And of course, Prodigy is that basically- That sounds like a Harry Potter, like, I'm going to try, like, curse, like, aluminium. <laughs> aluminium, yes. And of course- as you know, Prodigy is based in Cambridge, Massachusetts, which is uh, in the Boston area. And uh, we're still upset about the tea in the harbor, just so you know. Over to you, Maya. I was going to say that linking this to things like burnout, I think there's a there's a few things that are related to that. I think the key principle is for all of these is that we're all trying to accomplish the same thing. I think as a leader, putting everything in the context of the vision, right, which is I think for how simple the vision is in EMS, right, which is how do we promote the best health of our communities, it gets lost so often in the details of who's the boss of this and who's the boss of that and what is mine versus otherwise. But I think if we think about everything in the context of the special cause, it just makes sense. That of course you admit your mistakes so that everybody can learn from them. So of course you're going to do this because that's the goal. I think when we lose sight of that, of what is it that we're trying to accomplish, we lose sight of the wins that we have every day. Because I think everybody has been 
sharing sort of in the same distress of the emergency departments we work in today are not what they were, you know, two years ago, that the staffing we have is not what it was two years ago. And the problems can seem so completely insurmountable. But having that goal and then knowing where reality is gives you the direction of slowly, slowly, I can work towards that goal. And that goal might be as simple as I'm going to do something nice for somebody today in a way that makes them feel cared for by the system, which is like a small win on a given day versus I'm going to work on this long-term quality improvement project that helps me care for people. And I know for myself, the ability sort of to continue to connect with patients as humans and what I'm trying to accomplish overall is, I think, the thing that keeps me coming back to work, right? That keeps me loving my job. One of the reasons I go to NAMSP or am part of these other organizations or work with people like the people at Prodigy is because there is energizing to feel that other people are trying to do the same thing. And the more we can have that special cause, I think the more that we can realize the connection between other people who are trying to see the same thing and support each other through that. And you said this all in this PEC position statement. We'll link to this paper in the show notes. Everyone should read it. It happened to be, correct me if I'm wrong, noted last week as the most downloaded paper from PEC, right? Yeah, that was pretty exciting. And I have to say that this position statement was the work of you know, input from the education committee. And I had several amazing co-authors, including uh, Bill Leggio and Josh Dilley and Tom Growie, who really was the course director for the Lifelong Learning course. He took that on and took leadership there. And I think is not becoming, but is now a true leader in EMS education. He just lives a lot of these values as well. And the and the values that are espoused in this statement have to do with a lot of things that are what what people may uh, seem to think are beyond the scope of EMS or not part of EMS. So when you look at this uh, title and the kind of the, the thrust of the papers going beyond skills, you mentioned things like clinical decision making, evidence based medicine, how to be socially equitable and just. Skills like writing, social sciences, communication, obviously things around mental health, research, what our biases are, social determinants of health. These are all, if you open a textbook from five, 10 years ago, topics I don't think we're going to find per se. And so this pivoting and the importance of moving to a more human-centered or people-centered version of healthcare and being part of the healthcare system and taking care of our people so that they have these wins and feel like they're making a difference. Many of these skills and many of these topics need to be studied and need to be emphasized in an EMS curriculum, whether it's initial education or continuing. I agree. I think really my primary goal, my involvement in the paramedic program is I teach a curriculum on research and I teach certain things, but my primary goal is to set people up to learn how to learn on their own. When we think about some of the things that we pre-specified as parts that should be in the curriculum, I think fundamentally those are things that we learn about so that we can become lifelong learners who are able to self-evaluate and learn new. So for example, things like evidence-based practice allow you to evaluate how do I actually change my practice But including things about social equity and bias 
right? I need to know about those things so that I can make unconscious conscious and actually address it and improve my system. It's intimately linked to things like quality improvement, which is how do I actually have a framework to improve the care that we provide? I think there are specific things that we talk about, you know, effective communication skills. Effective communication skills is not only can I talk to my patients, but how do I communicate effectively about areas for improvement with my team? How do I effective the message of what is it that we're trying to achieve? I think one of the really interesting things about curriculum development, right, and writing objectives is very often we have our like overt objectives, you know, like I will discuss, you know, systems of care around stroke. But then there's the undercurrent objective, which is actually truly the higher level objective, which is we're going to reflect on the research evidence that has built the systems as they are and identify opportunities for improvement. Because the most important thing to emphasize is not the way that things are, but how we got here, what changes happened to make it so why we do the things we do, and what would it take for us to change. I think that's true basically and almost can be true basically almost anything that you teach. One of the the lines, um, Bill Camella is the program director at the MCC Paramedic Program. He is, you know, he's my work husband and he's amazing. I'm so lucky to have that relationship. But one of his lines is, I never want to hear you say, I do this because Maya said so, or because Bill said so. Some people want to hear that somebody, you know, is listening to them, but nothing would make us sadder than you saying, I do this because they said so. I do this because we discuss the evidence and that's what the evidence says, right? Or we do this even though we don't have good evidence, but it makes good sense and hopefully somebody will study it. And I'm willing to change if it finds something contrary to our current practice. You're back to the systems again and helping empower our students and our new providers to understand the system. Because if they don't understand it and respect it, they likely will not believe in it and maybe not bother to become a lifelong learner. But if we make them aware of how important it is to understand where that stroke care came from or allow them to evaluate, actually ask them. Do you think this is a good idea based on what you know so far? Those are questions that learners don't always get, especially people who are learning something like an EMT curriculum. They are not often asked, how do you feel about this? What is your thinking about this? What emotions are evoked in you when you think of the way you're supposed to do A, B, and C with a patient? How does it make you feel to intubate someone and literally take away their airway or give them a new one? You know, these are kind of the touchy-feely things that maybe traditionally have been lost in EMS, but I think it goes back to that safety culture as well. Maya, your thinking on a lot of call types and, and chief complaints and things like that have been, I've, I've watched you and listened to you illuminate your thinking on those and the systems. And one of them that I want to mention, because it's, it's worth mentioning for a number of reasons, is the podcast episode that you did with the great Ginger Locke on Medic Mindset about lift assists. And it really changed my thinking. And I know other people's thinking because I've talked to them about the episode. I want you to tell us with Rob's story inserted here first, because it's super interesting in his background coming from the UK. I want you to tell us what it was about lift assist that made you want to devote a whole podcast episode to it and why we should think about it differently. 
But first, Rob, tell us about the origin story of your fall prevention and lift assist. Well, first of all, I've done a number of podcasts, and if there was ever ever an episode I wanted to do, it would be falls prevention and lift assists. But when I listened to Maya and Ginger, you guys nailed it absolutely. So go away and listen to that. So we're directing you away from the EMS Educator podcast. Go and listen to Ginger and Maya on the medic mindset. When I started off in civilian EMS in the UK, I looked at the data. Uh, we always know that uh, data is my favorite four-letter word. And we re- I realized very quickly that the highest category of call was NPDS code 17. So it was falls. It was in a- eclipsed by far anything else across my entire service in the UK and so we started to drill down into it and ground level falls and the association of what we call in the UK a fractured neck of femur, okay, a femur fracture from, you know, post, dare I say, again, also postmenopausal women that are predisposed to, to falls that, you know, and we drilled right down into that, the, the causation, you know, looking and the thing that you guys talked about on your podcast, we talked about polypharmacy. And so when you, when you said that on, on you and Ginger said that I was standing up and cheering at, at it. And so, of course, it whilst it's not, you know, sexy trauma, it's not penetrating wounds, but it's actually the bread and butter of what we do. And, of course, we can work harder at the preventive, the public health side of it as well, in terms of we know that the demographic of person that may well be predisposed to falling. Okay, we know that gravity is the enemy. We know the things that we have to do in order to maybe reduce that number of calls we know the equipment that's out there to help us do that. We have the ability now to message in order to to promote the fact that it is our largest category. And so I went from the data to actually creating falls pickup services because, of course, you know, if the ambulance and this week where we are in the middle of ambulance patient offload delay palooza going on, okay, if we can send a service that's purpose built to do falls pickup, for example, then that's going to save a 911 truck. So we went on to that. We and then went on to, to talking about the, the care and residential sector in the UK, where, you know, of course, they tried to limit their liability. And if a patient falls over inside the care home, then they would call 999. We would show up and then go, well, we have a no lift policy. And actually, I got not into trouble, but I, I got into some interesting discussion where I told the medics or the community paramedics to say, funnily enough, so do we have a no lift policy. So in other words, let's manage this together. Let's come up with some strategies. Let's come up with some processes that, that you're not just going to call 999, a public resource in the UK, to come and do something that, providing the patient isn't injured, that you can do too. So, again, I was cheering at that episode. You hit it out of the park, Maya and Ginger, if you're listening. Absolutely spot on. Dr. Dorset, back to you. I told Ginger that I thought, or I didn't really tell you after the part of it, I thought, we should call this episode Rethinking Lift Assist because it's the thinking series, but I think that that is part of the rethinking series. <laughs> I think I was drawn to talk about that specific topic for a few reasons. The first is that I really do think it's high complexity decision making, and I think it gives us the opportunity to talk about the biases we have and sort of the metacognition of how do we make decisions based on call types, impressions, frequency, which I think is really important to think about. So that was part of it. But I think the the bigger reason I think it's so important Mm -hmm. to talk about is that, to Rob's point, it's so common in what we do. And I think so much of sort of the bias we have of how do people decide to be part of this field is 
those sort of sexy things, big traumas and cardiac arrests and how we celebrate wins in those areas, but we don't celebrate what we do every single day where we truly have capacity to make an incredible difference in people's lives. Yeah, we should stop the narrative of, you know, the firefighter medic walking slow motion out of the burning building with the baby to the crew walking slow motion into the care and residential sector because it reflects what we do. And that's perhaps another show that, you know, we are maybe misrepresenting the core and actually important part of our business. You know, every once in a while you read a tweet that really sort of sends a message home. And there was a a tweet that I actually put up, you know, I incorporate tweets into my lectures, but there was a tweet that said something along the lines of, we sometimes forget that the fall patient who doesn't get picked up is the next cardiac arrest. And we celebrate resuscitating the cardiac arrest, or we think, oh, I had a cardiac arrest. I did all this stuff. Even, you know, I found grandma and asystole on the floor not realizing that either preventing that fall or having a mechanism that she gets the care she needs actually would be a much better win. So I tell my paramedic students to, you know, every time you go on a a geriatric fall patient and you do a really good assessment, um, pat yourself on the back. You you pick the person up off the floor. That's like you just saved their life. And we don't think about it that way. And I think that's why we don't see the wins. And I think Amongst all the things that we need to make unconscious, very conscious and deliberate, one of those things is actually examining the true impact that you make, because I think that allows us to appreciate the privilege of what we get to do, which is go into people's homes and make a difference in their lives that way. And to me, that's amazing. But sometimes we just don't get the chance to see how amazing it is because it just sort of fades into the background of what we do every day. From the perspective of even the position statement that we talked about earlier, right, that's a big part of it is that we need to educate people for the job that they're actually going to do. I think we have a lot of room for for change. I think fundamentally, coming back to systems thinking, I think it is is systems thinking. Are you going to hate me if I read a quote? No. More quotes, please. More Bring it on. Bring it on. So this is actually here. You guys are looking at the fifth discipline, which I have things, right? This is my... My written things, but this is, he has a a chapter in the fifth discipline called A Shift of Mind, and the section is called Seeing the World Anew. This is how it opens. There is something in all of us that loves to put together a puzzle, that loves to see the image of the whole emerge. The beauty of a person or a flower or a poem lies in seeing all of it. It is interesting that the words whole or health come from the same root, the old English hal, as in hail or hearty. So it should come as no surprise that the unhealthiness of our world today is in direct proportion to our inability to see it as a whole. Systems thinking is a discipline for seeing wholes. It is a framework for seeing interrelationships rather than things, for seeing the patterns of change rather than static snapshots. And the reason I think for me, the connection I made there is that we need to see EMS as the whole of all the things that we do and can do to promote community health and and the rest of it. And if only we see sort of static snapshots of we value these kinds of calls or we look at things, then we sort of lose the beauty in everything that we do. Thinking from a system perspective lets you say, even if this is like a small win, you know, a million small wins add up to more (laughs) than five big ones. And until you see the whole, you're not really going to get there. 
That comes back to one of the questions, Maya, that I asked you down in San Diego. Are you ready for this? How do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. <laughs> Which paraphrases exactly what you said. And uh, indeed, one bite at a time is the way to go. I'm always going to love when anybody talks etymology. So good job on that one, uh, Maya. With the whole health, hail, hearty. That is awesome. When I think about being a paramedic and going on a, and I'm dispatched for a lift assist, I've already made my decision before I even put my seatbelt on that this is going to be a quick call. I'm going to get there. I'm going to dust them off, make sure they're not injured, put them back in the bed and go back to my bed. And so if I'm not thinking of that, about that whole system, if I'm not thinking about this could actually be the patient who's going to be picked up tomorrow, excuse me, not picked up tomorrow, but coding tomorrow and my relief is going to run them. If I'm not thinking about the things that might lead to that, I'm coming in with this unconscious bias and I'm making a decision based on kind of flawed evidence. So if I have a medical director like you who encourages me to think differently and think in a systems manner, then my differential for a lift assist patient has expanded enormously from just my legs were weak and I fell down. And because of that potential of the risk of finding somebody on the floor in arrest or assistedly, just sort of for full disclosure, back in the UK, the community first responders who are not fire trucks, but the citizens with defibrillators in the locality were always dispatched to the MPDS code 17 because the fall is the bit is gravity. It's not the reason they fell. And so you'd always get a community first responder for a fall. Now, sometimes they would arrive and realize the patient's okay and has really just tipped over. And couldn't do anything. But actually, the chance of a save was always there. And they were always went because of that. So, you know, even though I, you know, we talked about fall services, if it was a 17 and as a ground is a fall, then the community first responder went because you just never know. I think the other systems approach, why lift assists are so key there is that it's not more is better. It's more for those who need it and actually using your thorough assessment to say is something else going on and this patient should be transported versus saying, oh, I'm just going to protect myself and I'm always going to, you know, transport or threaten that they're going to die on their floor tomorrow if they don't get transported. So it's really the finesse of meeting the resource to what the patient needs because more is not better. You know, that conference we first met at, that was the principle of the conference, right? Like more is not better. So how do we think about a way that meets the needs of people without just saying we're going to do more? Because we do a lot of a lot in the US and that doesn't necessarily need to improve outcomes. And there's potential in many instances for that to lead to harm. And your message over time has been in, in the position paper as well, but I've heard you say it, is this low acuity, seemingly low acuity call actually demands of us higher order and higher level thinking and more complex thinking perhaps than even something like a cardiac arrest, which is ends up being kind of a choreographed rote response. So I love that concept that these low acuity calls could actually challenge us to be more clinical in our decision making than the others. That's fantastic. So do listen to the Medic Mindset, that particular episode. It's an absolute classic. Maya, how can we A, get in touch with you? And more importantly, how can we follow you? So I can be followed on Twitter at, at Maya Dorset, M-A-I-A-D-O-R-S-E-T-T. I was not very creative when I set it up and it's just my name and I can be direct message through through Twitter. Great. Thank you. And uh, as always, uh, you can follow me at uh, UKRobL1 on Twitter or over on LinkedIn. And we can follow you, Hillary, 
via? At Gates Hill. And I'm on Facebook and LinkedIn as well. So let us know what you want to hear next and give a shout out and some kudos to our new medical director, Maya Dorsett. So excited to have you on. As I say, it's a shame we didn't have a video version of this because we are all grinning. In fact, it could hurt later. But because we're so excited to have you and uh, we look forward to see what comes next. And uh, if you are listening to this, look out for the video of the interview we did with Maya. Press releases will be out there and great things to come. That's about all for now with the EMS Educator Podcast. I've been Rob Lawrence, but over to you, Hillary, for your closing thoughts. I just want to thank Maya and all medical directors out there who are true champions of our industry, who know what we need and who support us in every step of our education. It's imperative that we have leaders and supporters and physicians, chiefs, whatever the title may be, that we have people who encourage education, lifelong learning. So thank you to those. And that'll be it for today. From Maya, from Hillary, and from myself, bye for now and see you next time.